Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode I'm joined by an author who's been described as the king of all crime thriller writers. His books have sold over 30 million copies, gripping readers around the world. He's been a footballer, stockbroker and also a rock star as well as a writer. There is no end to his talents. He's Joe Nesbo. Joe, welcome. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Joe has travelled all the way from his native Norway to the Penguin Studio to tell us about his new novel, The Thirst, the latest gripping instalment in his best-selling Harry Hole series. And he has brought along five objects that have shaped and inspired his writing career. And I'm looking forward to hearing the stories behind this collection that I can see in front of me, some very intriguing items. Joe, the thirst follows serial killer chasing Oslo detective Harry Hole as he's drawn out of retirement from the crime squad by a particularly vicious murder with a connection to his only unsolved case. Harry clearly has a score to settle in this novel. It's been a few years since the last Harry Hole novel, The Police. Why did you decide to bring Harry back? He was always coming back. Mm. It was just a matter of time and um, the reason why it took four years is simply that I had some ideas for other books that I had to write first. Actually, I had an idea for another standalone uh, when I um, stumbled across an idea for this Harry Hole book, uh, The Thirst. I was, I was doing research. I was down in the cellar, the deep, dark cellar of psychiatry, uh, when I stumbled uh, across something called Renfield's Syndrome or clinical vampirism, which I had never heard about before. Mm. And um, it's people with the urge to drink blood. And I was fascinated with the word clinical vampirism. I mean, clinical on one hand, which is like real science, and vampirism on the other hand, which suggests myths and legends. So I started reading more about it, and I discovered that some of the worst serial killers in crime history has actually been labeled clinical vampirists. And um, they called it Renfield Syndrome. Then I remember Renfield. I had heard that name somewhere before. And then I remembered Bram Stoker's Dracula, the yeah. movie by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, and that Renfield was actually Dracula's servant, which made it to me even more bizarre and interesting. So... Um, I uh, did some more research and then I decided that this is a case for Harry Hole. Ah, so did the other book get put on pause? Do, it do did. You, it did? Yeah. Ah, you never write books concurrently then, is that right? The only thing that decides which book I will write next are the ideas. You know, I, I can't really have a plan. I started writing because I didn't want to work <laughs> and... Uh, if I put up a plan for what I would do and write the next few years, then it would feel like work, I guess. So I, I just have to go with my enthusiasm for a new idea. So I've been working on the thirst now uh, constantly for a year and a half. And is it not like work in any way, shape or form? No, no, it's not like working. It's um, There was a song by Bruce Springsteen where he said, I've been paid the king's ransom for doing what comes naturally. And in many ways, uh, for me, writing's been the same thing. I've been rewarded for my writing in so many ways. And I don't feel like I deserved it in a way because I haven't really been suffering enough <laughs> to deserve it. You know, I, I get to um, get up in the morning and just do what I love and what I uh, don't tell my publisher, but what I actually would do for free. 
Yeah, well, you don't have to put on a suit. You don't have to go to the office. Exactly. Where do you write mainly? I have this apartment uh, in Oslo with a big attic where I have a great view of uh, of the city and where I had specially made a desk and where I have my coffee machine. I have my music. I have a big laptop there. And it's the only place where I simply cannot write. <laughs> so where? Uh, I have this local coffee shop. Right. That I, um, oh, that I go to. Oh, you're reaching for one of the objects. Pause. We'll oh, come yeah. back to the coffee shop in that okay. case. Because we want to hear a bit of the book. So let's hear the opening of the audio book, The Thirst, read by Sean Barrett. He stared into the white nothingness, the way he had done for almost three years. No one saw him, and he saw no one. Apart from each time the door opened and enough steam was sucked out for him to be able to glimpse a naked man for a brief moment, before the door closed and everything was shrouded in fog. The baths would be closing soon. He was alone. He wrapped the white tiling bathrobe more tightly around him, got up from the wooden bench and walked out, past the empty swimming pool and into the changing room. No trickling showers, no conversations in Turkish, no bare feet padding across the tiled floor. He looked at himself in the mirror, ran a finger along the scar that was still visible after the last operation. It had taken him time to get used to his new face. His finger carried on down his throat, across his chest, and came to a halt at the start of the tattoo. He removed the padlock from his locker, pulled on his trousers, and put his coat on over the still damp bathrobe. Tied his shoelaces. He made sure he was definitely alone, before going over to a locker with a coded padlock, one with a splash of blue paint on it. He turned the lock until it read, 0999, removed the lock and opened the door. Took a moment to admire the big, beautiful revolver that lay inside, before taking hold of the red hilt and putting it in his coat pocket. Then he removed the envelope and opened it. A key, an address, and some more detailed information. There was one more thing in the locker, painted black, made of iron. He held it up against the light with one hand, looking at the wrought ironwork with fascination. He would have to clean it, scrub it, but he already felt aroused at the thought of using it. Three years, three years in a white nothingness, in a desert of empty days. Now it was time. Time he drank from the well of life again. Time he returned. Harry woke with a start, stared out at the semi-darkness of the bedroom. It was him again. He was back. He was here. Nightmare, darling? The whispered voice by his side was warm and soothing. He turned towards her. Her brown eyes studied his, and the apparition faded and disappeared. I'm here, Ruckle said. And here I am, he said. Who was it this time? No one, he lied and touched her cheek. Go back to sleep. Harry closed his eyes, waited until he was sure she had closed hers before opening his again. He studied her face. He had seen him in a forest this time, moorland, wreathed in white fog that swirled around him. He had raised his hand and pointed something towards Harry. 
he could just make out the demonic, tattooed face on his naked chest. Then the fog had grown thicker, and he was gone. Gone again. And here I am, Harry Hula whispered. Oh, that creepy tattoo. Ugh. So, Joe, you have brought a number of objects with you. We've already teased everyone with the first object, so please tell us a bit more. This is a picture of me sitting in my local coffee shop. You know, when I get up in the morning and I have a look at my beautiful desk at home, um, <laughs> I walk out and I walk to this tiny little coffee shop. And normally I don't get up that early in the morning, so my favorite table will be taken. <sighs> there will be somebody sitting there. And so what I normally do then is I go and I sit across the person sitting there uh, <laughs> until they understand it's time for them to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually they will. And so I will start writing. The sad thing is um, this small uh, coffee shop just closed. It, uh, it's been my coffee shop for 17 years. Oh, and no, that's just really tragic. Closed a few, uh, few weeks ago. And, uh, and the people who used to go there, they are now... You know, Homeless, walk, walking around in the streets in, in in this part of Oslo, like walking deads looking for, not blood, but coffee. Oh, <laughs> Good no. coffee. Yeah. This is a bit of a bombshell that you've dropped on us. This is the coffee shop that you write your books in. Where will you write now? Well, I did an interview in a newspaper in Oslo, you know, complaining about my coffee shop closing and saying that I would be willing to invest some money if somebody would, you know, start a good coffee shop. And uh, so I have had people uh, calling me and wanting to open a coffee shop. So uh, maybe ah. next time we speak, maybe I you'll be you know, I own a coffee shop. Yeah, you'll be writing from Joe's, yeah. Joe's coffee shop. Hopefully I will have my own table. Actually, the table that you see on this picture, they have saved that table. So if I should ever need it in a new coffee shop, they uh, said they will put up the, the table there. That's brilliant. They'll have to put a little plaque. Mm. So am I also right in thinking that this coffee shop was also where you overheard the date, the Tinder date that inspired the thirst? Yes. Ah. Yes. This started a few years ago, uh, before Tinder, when people started net dating. And uh, I saw people sitting at these tables and, like, sitting very... Um, stiff and talking to each other and one person would talk at a, at a time and the other listening very politely and nodding, uh, keeping eye contact. And uh, to me, it looked like a job interview. Uh, but then I, I realized that these are net datings. And uh, so I, I got curious and I Normally, I sit down and write on a laptop, listening to music with headphones. So I would discreetly turn down the volume on the on the music and remove one of my he headphones and listen in on the conversations. And and it was, you know, of course, very awkward. And you know, listening to people trying to, you know, marketing themselves and um, looking for love, I guess. Mm -hmm. And and but that was also what impressed me was that people were willing, had the courage, you know, to come in with their hearts in their hands and, uh, you know, risking their dignity uh, to find someone. And um, normally when I do research for my books, I, I do many of the things that characters in my books do. 
And um, I've done some, I'd say, extreme research, uh, research that isn't really allowed by Norwegian law. But, uh, but when it came to the Tinder dates, I have to admit I chickened out. I, um, you didn't get on Tinder. I, I, I didn't, uh. I didn't. So, but I had a, a friend of mine, a, a girl who I've been in a relationship for many years and uh, she was single. And so I persuaded her to try Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> and I became a wingman. And so she would report back to me and uh, I would take notes. Ah, mm. and some of those have gone into the book. Some of them have gone in, into the book. But actually the story has a happy ending. She's uh, her boyfriend now she met on Tinder. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, there's been marriages that have happened on Tinder and divorces, I'm sure. Well, let's go back to Oslo with another very creepy extract from the audiobook of The Thirst. Ping. A match on Tinder. The triumphant sound your phone makes when someone you've already swiped right on swipes your picture right as well. Elisa's head was spinning, her heart was racing. She knew it was the familiar response to the sound of Tinder's matchmaking. Increased heart rate as a consequence of excitement. That it released a whole load of happy chemicals that you could become addicted to. But that wasn't why her heart was galloping. It was because the ping hadn't come from her phone. But the ping had rung out at the very moment she'd swiped right on a picture. The picture of a person who, according to Tinder, was less than a kilometre away from her. She stared at the closed bedroom door, swallowed. The sound must have come from one of the neighbouring apartments. There were lots of single people living in the block, lots of potential Tinder users. And everything was quiet now, even on the floor below, where the girls had been having a party when she went out earlier that evening. But there was only one way to get rid of imaginary monsters, by checking. Elisa got up from the sofa and walked the four steps over to the bedroom door. Hesitated. A couple of assault cases from work swirled through her head. Then she pulled herself together and opened the door. She found herself standing in the doorway, gasping for air. Because there wasn't any. None that she could breathe. The light above the bed was switched on. And the first thing she saw was the soles of a pair of cowboy boots sticking off the end of the bed jeans, and a pair of long legs, crossed. The man lying there was like a photograph, half in darkness, half out of focus. But he had unbuttoned his shirt to reveal his bare chest, and on his chest was a drawing or a tattoo of a face. That was what caught her eye now, the silently screaming face, as if it were held tight and was trying to pull free. Elisa couldn't bring herself to scream either. As the person on the bed sat up, the light from his mobile phone fell across his face. So, we meet again, Elisa, he whispered. Oh, I think lots of people will be deleting their Tinder apps after hearing that. So, on to the next object. This is one of your favourite novels. Tell me about Jim Thompson's The Killer Inside Me. I read it quite late, I think it was... Uh in the 90s and uh, I was amazed it was uh, just one of the best books definitely one of the best crime books I've ever read it's about a sociopath uh, and it's written from the written in first person and uh, I think that's what makes it so chilling 
uh, is that you are sort of forced into trying to sympathize with mm. the main character. Have you always been a big reader? And what sort of books did you read as a child? I would read anything, actually. We had shelves full of books at home. My mother was a librarian and my father was a book collector. And uh, at a young age, I would have my father read books to me. Uh, I would read children's books, but uh, I can remember me picking Lord of the Flies out of the bookshelf and asking my father to read it to me at the age of six or seven. And uh, it wasn't because I knew that the writer was a Nobel Prize winning author, but uh, because I liked the cover Mm. which was a pig's head on a stake. Yes. And um, I, I had probably read on the backside of the book that it was about some children on a deserted island. And according to my father, I, I don't know if this is true, but after he had read it to me, he asked me, so um, what do you think about the book? And I said that, well, it was a bit slow, uh, but I'm sure that the writer, he will he will do better in his next book But because I can see there is some talent there. <laughs> How old were you? <laughs> no, I probably didn't say this, but my father always made that joke. I bet you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, when did you decide you wanted to be a writer? Because you were a stockbroker. How did that happen? How, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was pretty convinced I was going to be a professional soccer player at the age of 16, 17. Uh, and, and I actually did play a few games for my local team in the Norwegian Premier League. But then mm. I broke the ligaments in both knees and I had to come up with a plan B. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. So um, what do you do when you don't know what you want to do? You study economics, right? Yeah, that's yeah. what I did, yeah. And after that, I um, ended up as a stockbroker. I don't know why, really. They paid well. I think that was reason enough. It does enough. pay well. Yeah. For nine years, it paid well. But yeah. then you thought, I want a job that doesn't feel like a job. Is that it? Or yeah, well, I've had enough? Um, or? I played with a band um, at the same time as I worked as a stockbroker. It was just something we did, you know, in the weekends for fun. But then I wrote a couple of songs that became really popular and we got a record deal. Mm-hmm. And suddenly we were this big selling band in Norway, which uh, was very strange because we were just like four friends in the band. And, I just and love the way you're so matter-of-fact about it. Uh, I was doing semi-professional football and I tore my ligaments. <laughs> so then I was a stockbroker and then I decided to write some songs and, and we got a record deal and, and then we were pretty successful. Mm-hmm. And I mean, don't you pinch yourself every day and go, is this real? Uh no, I, you don't. Something well, about your personality tells me that you do not do that. <laughs> well, we got lucky. I, I mean, you must not underestimate the, the factor of, uh, of luck. Yeah, you do need talent. But uh, as you know, that talent is not enough. There are so many mm. talented people out there and that will never get a record deal or mm. never have their brilliant books published. And, and so I just had the luck. And anyway, I had this sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde existence for some years where I would keep my day job and we were touring with the band, the rest of the band being full-time musicians. And uh, I did 180 gigs in one year while I worked as a stockbroker. And so at the end of that year, I was more or less burnt out. And so I, I told my band that I didn't want to tour for a long time and that I wasn't going to write songs for a long time. And then I told my my boss at the brokerage firm that I needed a long vacation. And so I went to Australia and um, that's where I wrote the first novel. 
Well, let's hear again from the thirst, and in this extract, we meet Harry Hole. Harry woke up. The echo of a dream, a scream, died away. He lit a cigarette and reflected upon what sort of awakening this was. There were basically five different types. The first was waking up to work. For a long time, that had been the best sort, when he could slip straight into the case he was investigating. Sometimes sleep and dreams had done something to his way of seeing things, and he could lie there going through what they had revealed, piece by piece, from this new perspective. If he was lucky, he might be able to catch a glimpse of something new, see part of the dark side of the moon. Not because the moon had moved, but because he had. The second sort was waking up alone. That was characterized by an awareness that he was alone in bed, alone in life, alone in the world, and it could sometimes fill him with a sweet sensation of freedom, and at other times with a melancholy that could perhaps be called loneliness, but which was perhaps just a glimpse of what anyone's life really is, a journey from the attachment of the umbilical cord to a death where we are finally separated from everything and everyone. A brief glimpse at the moment of awakening before all our defence mechanisms and comforting illusions slot into place again, and we can face life in all its unreal glory. Then there was waking up full of angst. That usually happened if he'd been drunk for more than three days in a row. There were different gradations of angst, but it was always there, instantly. It was hard to identify a specific external danger or threat. It was more a sense of panic at being awake at all, being alive, being here. But every so often he could sense an internal threat, a fear of never feeling afraid again, of finally and irrevocably going mad. The fourth was similar to waking up full of angst. The there are other people here awakening. That set his mind working in two directions, one backwards, how the hell did this happen? One forwards, how do I get out of here? Sometimes this fight-or-flight impulse would settle down, but that always came later and therefore fell outside the frame of waking up. And then there was the fifth, which was a new type of waking up for Harry Hula. Waking up content. At first he had been surprised that it was possible to wake up happy, and had automatically thought through all the parameters, what this ridiculous happiness actually consisted of, and if it was just an echo of some wonderful, stupid dream. But that night he hadn't had any nice dreams, and the echo of the scream that came from the demon, the face on his retina which belonged to the murderer who got away. Even so, Harry had woken up happy. Hadn't he? Yes. And when this variety of awakening had been repeated, morning after morning, he had begun to get used to the idea that he might actually be a relatively content man who had found happiness somewhere towards the end of his forties and actually seemed capable of clinging on to this newly conquered territory. The main reason for this lay less than an arm's length away from him and was breathing calmly and evenly. Her hair lay spread out on the pillow, like the rays of a raven-black sun. So on to your next object, and you couldn't bring this into the Penguin Studio for obvious reasons, because it's an... Aeroplane. Thank you. <laughs> Why have you chosen um, this? The reason is that I like to write not only in my coffee shop, but also at uh, airports. 
You get the feeling that you're doing two things at the same time. Uh, you're waiting for your plane and you're riding. I talk to other riders. They feel the same thing about airports. They, they, it's the perfect place to ride for some reason. Did you write anything coming over here at the airport? Yeah, I did. Hey. Yes, sitting at the gate, actually. Ah, yeah. okay. I'm probably one of the few passengers when they announce that the plane is two hours delayed. I, I go, yes. Hooray. <laughs> yeah. And did you dream up the character of Harry Hole whilst you were actually on the plane? Yes, I sort of did. I, um, I was going to um, to Sydney and I had planned to start writing a novel. And it takes around 33 hours to fly from Oslo to Sydney. So um, there was plenty of time to, mm. uh, to come up with both a character and a plot. Harry has lots of demons that he battles. Uh, d- did you base him on anyone? Not that I'm... Aware of. Then again, it's uh, yes, of course, I based it on uh, on someone you you don't just take things out of thin air. So uh, it's probably a bit of uh, of me in him. It's right. uh, probably a bit of uh, Harry, um, who was the local football player where I grew up. Um, Harry Hesta. Right. And uh, well, there's nothing of the police officer Hole or Hula. Uh, which is a common Norwegian uh, surname, which was the local police officer where my grandmother lived. And uh, so when we went to her for our summer holidays, she would always say, um, if you're not home and in bed by 8 o'clock, then Hula will come get you. (laughs) And I never saw him. I never met him. And I guess that was uh, half the reason why I always imagined him as this, you know, scary, big, blonde guy with uh, steel blue eyes. Right. And actually, some years ago, I was back home and I was in that village and this old, old man came up to me and he came over to me and he had this steel blue eyes and he shook my hand and he had this bony hard hand and he said, hello, I'm Hula. He said, <laughs> and, uh, he was so scary. You know, but my, my first thought was that, yeah, but it's not eight o'clock yet. <laughs> So let's dip back into the thirst now with another extract from the audiobook. This is what we found around the injuries to her neck, Mjern Holmes said, pointing to the image on the screen. The three fragments on the left are rusted iron, and on the right, black paint. Katrina had sat down with the others in the conference room. Bjorn had been out of breath when he arrived, and his pale cheeks were still glistening with sweat. He tapped on his laptop, and a close-up of the neck appeared. As you can see, the places where the skin has been punctured form a pattern, as if she'd been bitten by someone, but if that was the case, the teeth must have been razor sharp. A satanist, Scala said. Katrina wondered if it was someone who had sharpened his teeth, but we've checked, and where the teeth would have almost gone through the other side of the fold of skin, we can see that the teeth don't actually meet, but have slotted in perfectly between the other set of teeth. So this could hardly be an ordinary human bite, where the lower and upper teeth are positioned so that they meet each other tooth for tooth. The fact that we found rust, therefore, leads me to think that the perpetrator used some sort of iron dentures. Bjorn tapped at the computer. Katrina felt a quiet gasp go through the room. The screen showed an object which had first put Katrina in mind of an old rusty animal trap she had once seen at her grandfather's in Bergen, something he called a bear trap. The sharp teeth formed a zigzag pattern, 
and the upper and lower jaws were fixed together by what looked to be a spring-loaded mechanism. This picture is taken from a private collection in Caracas, and is said to date from the days of slavery, when they used to bet on slaves fighting each other. Two slaves would each be given a set of dentures, their hands would be tied behind their backs, and then they would be put in the ring. The one who survived went through to the next round, I assume. But to get back to the point, please, Katrina said. I've tried to find out where you could get hold of a set of iron teeth like these. And it isn't exactly the sort of thing you can get through mail order. So if we were able to find someone who sold contraptions like this in Oslo, or elsewhere in Norway, and who too, I'd say we'd be looking at a very limited number of people. Katrina realised that Björn had gone far beyond the usual duties of a forensics officer, but decided not to comment on the fact. One more thing, Björn said. There's not enough blood. Not enough? The blood contained in an adult human body makes up, on average, 7% of body weight. It differs slightly from person to person, but even if she was at the low end of the scale, there's almost half a litre missing when we add up what was left in the body, on the carpet, in the hallway, on the wooden floor, and the small quantity on the bed. So, unless the murderer took the missing blood away with him in a bucket? He drank it, Katrina concluded, giving voice to what they were all thinking. So... Do you feel his character has changed over the course of the books or have you kept him sort of true to how he started out, would you say? I think that he has evolved. On the other hand, I did reread my first novel, which is the only novel in the Harry Hole series that I've read again. And uh, I was a bit surprised, actually, that he has remained the same. But then again, he has been, uh, I mean, physically, he's slowly falling apart like yeah. everybody else. And mentally, he has had a journey from being this loner. And he has been able to establish an intimate relationship with Rachel, which is something if you read the first three, four books, you would think he would have really big problems doing that. And yes, he has had big problems doing that, but he's married. And at the beginning of the thirst, he's waking up in the morning and he's actually happy. Yeah. He's, he's content for maybe the first time during the series. Yeah. Time now, though, for your next object. Tell me about these ropes. Yeah, we have ropes and we have nuts and cams. Mm. And this is for rock climbing. I started rock climbing, uh, first time I tried it was like 12 years ago or something. But for the last eight years, I, uh, I've been doing a lot of rock climbing. Just uh, You're not going to start becoming a world champion in rock climbing no, next, are you? I, I, I actually... Let someone else have a go at success. I, you know what? I'm not a very talented climber. That's oh. and, and that's a fact. And I guess... That's part of the reason why I found it a bit intriguing. I, I get so annoyed because I could tell that other people that I saw started climbing, they would have faster progress than I would have. So I, I couldn't figure out why I, why I wasn't a natural-born climber. And I also have a slight fear of heights, which made it a mental uh, challenge. Uh. But I love it. I go to Thailand to write every year. I have a bungalow of... Uh down there uh, where I'm staying but it's also one of the best spots for rock climbing uh, uh, in uh, in Asia so there's a lots of I have lots of climbing friends who go there too and so we spend January and February 
me writing and climbing. Do you ever work out plots while climbing? No. That's a good thing about climbing is that you forget everything else. It's all about the rock and the climbing. Yeah. So it's time for our final extract from the audiobook of The Thirst, read by Sean Barrett. And in this clip, psychologist Holstein Smith tells Detective Katrine Bratt exactly what the crime squad are up against with a vampirist on the loose. They carried on past a row of stalls and stopped in front of the door to an office. Smith unlocked it. The room contained a desk with a PC, a window looking out across the field, a drawing of a vampire with big, thin bat's wings, a long neck and square face. The bookcase behind the desk was half full with files and a dozen or so books. What you see before you is everything that has ever been published on vampirism, Smith said, running his hand over the books. So it's pretty easy to get an overview. Uh, but to answer your question, let's start with Vandenberg and Kelly from 1964. Smith pulled out one of the books, opened it and read... Vampirism is defined as the act of drawing blood from an object, usually a love object, and receiving resultant sexual excitement and pleasure. That's the dry definition, but you're after more than that, aren't you? I think so, Katrina said, and looked at the picture of the vampire. It was a fine piece of art, simple, lonely, and it seemed to radiate a chill that instinctively made her pull her jacket tighter. Well, let's go a bit deeper, Smith said. To start with, vampirism isn't some newfangled invention. The word obviously refers to the myth about bloodthirsty creatures in human guise going way back through history, especially in Eastern Europe and Greece. But the modern concept of vampires comes mainly from Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897 and the first vampire films of the 1930s. Some researchers mistakenly believe that vampirists, ordinary but sick individuals, are largely inspired by these myths. They forget that vampirism had already been mentioned in this. Smith pulled out an old book with a half-disintegrated brown cover. Richard von Kraft Ebing's Psychopathia Sexualis, from 1887. In other words, before the myth became widely known. Smith put it back carefully and pulled out another book. My own research is based on the idea that vampirism is related to such conditions as necrophagia, necrophilia and sadism, just as the author of this book, Bourguignon, also thought. Smith opened it. This is from 1983. Vampirism is a rare compulsive disorder with an irresistible urge for blood ingestion, a ritual necessary to bring mental relief. Like other compulsions, its meaning is not understood by the participant. So a vampirist just does what vampirists do. They simply can't act differently. That's an oversimplification, but yes... Well, that was our final extract from the Thirst audiobook, and now it's time for your final object. You're clearly multi-talented because as well as being a best-selling writer and the climbing and you've been a stockbroker, you are also, as we mentioned, in a chart-topping band, and this is your latest album. Didera. What does that mean? <laughs> Didera? Uh, it means those guys. Those guys, OK. Didera, the history about the band... I, I'm, uh, the history about a band. The history about a band. My Norwegian isn't very good. You'll have to excuse me. <laughs> Tell us a bit about the band and your album and juggling life being a musician and a writer. The band started in a club in Oslo in the early 90s. And um, the reason why we called ourselves those guys is that um, 
when we started playing in this club, it, it wasn't a club where you normally had live music, but we persuaded the people there that we could play for free. We didn't even get free beer. We had to pay for our beers there. And we were so awful that um, we would have to change the name of the band every weekend so that people would come <laughs> back. And after a while, we got better and people actually started liking the band and they started asking, or, and since we didn't have a name, they would ask, you know, are those guys going to play next week? And so we figured that we might as well call the band those guys. That's great, mm. those guys. Yeah. I mean, you've had so much success. What is next for you then? Um, right now I'm working on a, um, a version of uh, a novel uh, based on Shakespeare play Macbeth. I was oh. invited together with other writers to write novels based on um, Shakespeare plays in um, connection with the 400 years anniversary of Shakespeare. Okay. Macbeth. Well, we look forward to it. Me too. And what about Harry Hole? When's he back on the scene or you don't know? Uh, we'll see maybe 2019, two years' time. Okay. Hopefully. I'll be uh, waiting till then in that case. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been brilliant talking to you and we await your next book with eager anticipation. Thanks so much. New from Penguin Random House Audio. From Paula Hawkins, author of The Girl on the Train, comes the incredible new standalone thriller Into the Water, a gripping, twisting, layered story set in a small riverside town. Into the Water is an addictive novel of psychological suspense about the slipperiness of the truth and a family drowning in secrets. It is autumn, a cold wind blowing, but the sun is bright and so she feels ashamed stripped there in the bright light before all the men and women of the village. She thinks she can hear them gasp, in horror or surprise, at what's become of lovely Libby Seaton. She's bound with ropes thick and rough enough to bring bright, fresh blood to her wrists. Just her arms, legs left free. Then they tie a rope around her waist, so that should she sink, they can bring her back again. When they take her to the river's edge, she turns and looks for him. The children scream then, thinking she's turning the curse on them. And the men push her into the water. The cold takes all of her breath. One of the men has a pole and he shoves it at her back, pressing her on and on and on until she cannot stand. She slips down into the water. She sinks. The cold is so shocking that she forgets where she is. She opens her mouth to gasp and sucks in black water. She starts to choke. She struggles. She kicks with her legs. But she's disoriented. No longer feels the riverbed beneath her feet. The rope pulls hard at her, biting into her waist, ripping her skin. When they drag her to the bank, she is crying. Again! Someone is calling for a second ordeal. She sank! A woman's voice cries. She's no witch, she's just a child. Again, again, the men bind her again for the second ordeal. Different this time. Left thumb to right toe, right thumb to left. The rope around her waist. This time, they carry her into the water. Please, she starts to beg, because she's not sure that she can face it again, the blackness and the cold. 
She wants to go back to a home that no longer exists, to a time when she and her aunt sat in front of the fire and told stories to one another. She wants to be in her bed in their cottage. She wants to be little again, to breathe in wood smoke and rose and the sweet warmth of her aunt's skin. Please! She sinks. By the time they drag her out the second time, her lips are the blue of a bruise, and her breath is gone for good. Into the Water by Paula Hawkins is available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.